The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the second event in our series. Why Talk About the Holocaust, organised by the Herzog Centre here at Trinity College Dublin and Holocaust Awareness Ireland in association with the Trinity Long Room Hub. In this series, we're concerned with thinking about the Holocaust in a contemporary context and from multiple perspectives. This evening's event is a conversation about families lost in the Holocaust, but it is really a story of rescue our speakers this evening have set about retrieving the details of the lives of individual family members, their names, characters, and relationships. The story is deeply personal. It's a story of discovery and a reflection on the relationship to this tragic past. We're delighted that we can be joined by Daniel Mendelssohn, award-winning writer, critic, and translator. His prolific output includes one of the most important recent works in a genre of Holocaust memoir, which plots the story of a later generation's interaction with family members who are victims of the Holocaust. His book, The Lost, A Search for Six of Six Million, which received superlative reviews and numerous awards, is a detective story, a meditation on lost family, a midrash on um, on family life and on his interaction with that family. Michael Chabon has said about it, it's a gripping detective story, a stirring epic, a tale of ghosts and dark marvels, a thrilling display of scholarship, a meditation on the unfathomable mystery of good and evil, a testimony to the enduring power of the ancient archetypes that haunt one Jewish family and the greater human family. The lost is as complex and rich with meaning and story as the past as it seeks to illuminate. A beautiful book, beautifully written. Mr. Mendelssohn is the director of the Robert B. Silvers Foundation, a charitable trust that supports nonfiction writing and also teaches literature at Bard College. Oliver Sears is the son of a Holocaust survivor and founder of Holocaust Awareness Ireland. Formerly a trustee, of Holocaust Education, um, uh, Holocaust Education Trust Ireland. In the past five years, he has given talks and interviews about his family story and his own attempt to come to terms with their fate and how talking about it can contribute to our thinking through contemporary challenges. I believe his mother, Monica Sears, has joined us this evening and I'd like to extend a special welcome. Before we start, I would also like to thank Francesca and em Emily at the Trinity Long Room Hub for all their help and support organizing this evening. We do hope to have time for questions at the end and please submit through these through the Q&A function. Welcome Daniel and Oliver. Thank you. Daniel, um, I'd like to start with you. Um, both you and Oliver have written about how you grew up in homes in which there was, I suppose this is a strange thing to say, the presence of a void um, an unmentionable silence um, and often inexplicable behavior or responses. You open your book with a chapter entitled The Formless Void, 
Can you talk about the process of deciding to pursue the void, to give it shape? Oh, apologies, you're muted. Sorry, I've only been doing this for a year and a half, so I'm 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 just getting used to it. Um, the um, you know, my relationship to this event is quite different to Oliver's, uh, who is a directly connected to the Holocaust. In our case, it was my grandfather's brother and his family, his wife and four young daughters who were killed during the Holocaust. Uh, so our relationship was obviously much more bleak, uh, oblique. Um, we never knew these people. I never knew these people, certainly. Um, and I was always a family historian when I was growing up. Uh, my, my mother's father was a sort of a great raconteur and always liked to talk about the old country and growing up in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, he emigrated as a young man in the 1920s to New York. Um, so he was sort of full of stories about the past, except about his brother, the one who had been murdered during the war, uh, 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 about whom he, he kept silent. So as a young child, I was sort of fascinated by why this was a story that could not be told. And certainly I would say, you know, when we were growing up in the 1970s, uh, um, you know, one felt that there was a, a, a piece of the family story that was a void. And because I was very interested in family history, I was rather bothered by that and also mystified. It was a kind of tantalizing mystery. And then, you know, things happened. I became a writer and I had already written a, another book, a lot of which was concerned with family history. And I just felt it was actually interesting. It was just as I turned 40, which is in 2000, that suddenly I just, I don't know, it was odd. It just, it just struck me one day that if I didn't get this story now, meaning the year 2000, when there were still a remarkable number of survivors and witnesses still alive, I would never get it. And I didn't realize it was going to be a book at first. I, 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 I actually uh, wrote a big piece for the New York Times Magazine, which is how this all started. I went back to the family Shtetl, uh, which is now located in Ukraine. I interviewed some people and that sort of got things going. But it was definitely this sense of wanting to answer a question that was floating in the air for many decades that spurred me to, to try to hunt down whatever could still be known as of that moment. And that eventually, as you know from reading the book, became a five-year odyssey of tracking down these few remaining survivors all over the world. But I would say it was just I think it's significant that it, it happened when I was 40 because it was very much a sort of middle-aged feeling that, that as you move into your own future, you have to somehow deal with the past and tie up the loose ends. And I think that was very much part of why I embarked on what became a really remarkable search. Can I just ask you, there, there are many 
intertwined and interwoven stories of different individuals that make up the Neil family. Um, for those of, who haven't had an opportunity maybe to read the book yet, but of course are going to dash out and buy it after, after watching this event, um, would you like to take, uh, give maybe an overview or take one example of one person or one story that particularly intrigued you um, and, and that you've, yeah. Well, sure. I mean, so the, as I said, when I was growing up, my grandfather who was quite a character. And as I said, a great storyteller about his past and his childhood. The one thing that he ever said, which I think is the one thing that he knew, um, was that his brother and his family had been hiding in this tiny little town where they lived and that someone had betrayed them to the to the the nazis that that they were in some kind of hiding place and i was so to me this story had an additional element which was about a great moral crisis it was not so to speak just i mean that's a sort of preposterous thing to say it wasn't just the war just the holocaust that in, in the story of these six people to whom I was related, there was a, an incredible moral failure on somebody's part that some, and an incredible moral bravery also because someone was hiding them and someone betrayed them. And that to me was irresistible. It was irresistible to me as a human being it was irresistible to me as a relative of these people, because of course it immediately raises all the famous questions. You know, what makes people good enough to hide a neighbor in trouble? And what makes people bad enough to turn them in? And as a writer, it was irresistible too. And that was really, and it was the one thing, the one thing that popped out when I was a kid and a teenager that my grandfather said, that they were hiding in some kind of castle, which I didn't understand what that meant until much later, some old building, and that someone turned them in, and that's why they died. So it, the stakes became much more fraught, I would say. Um, and that seemed to me a mystery worth solving. Thank you. O Oliver, can I, can I um, turn to you? Daniel talks about being able to chat with family members. And obviously there were still some survivors and eyewitnesses who could contribute to the bigger picture, trying to put the mosaic together. Um, I suppose you're on a different stage of your journey. Uh, you just started in the past few years and there, there is nobody left but your mum, who's a Holocaust survivor. Uh, yes, it's, um, I, I'm, I'm a, a late developer. Um, uh, I, I, I only really started talking about this publicly at the age of 45. Um, and in many ways, it's, I, I have lots of similarities to Daniel's story. Um, but my own story is, is also very different in that um, as he quite rightly points out, um, my mother being a survivor brings it that much closer. And 
uh, we growing up, we in many ways lived in uh, an atmosphere of, of secrets because no one, um, my mother didn't speak about this uh, story until she was 51. Um, we heard um, little snippets here and there. And I being the youngest, of course, was the last to know anything. I think it's possibly the privilege of being the youngest. And I mean, so much so that um, when my um, grandfather died in 1979, uh, I didn't know that he wasn't my real grandfather, that this was a man that my grandmother had met and married after they came to uh, London from Poland in 1947. Uh, so my, my experience is also very different in that I grew up in London. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have the confidence of my identity or understanding my identity that perhaps Daniel has. I don't want to speak for him, um, but he 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 is a, a, a Jew who uh, li lived and grew up in New York. It's a completely different experience. Uh, the, the Jewish population of the UK is two hundred and fifty thousand. I think it's three million in New York, and even within our community. Um, you know, we're secular Jews. We were on the fringe of a fringe. And coupled with that, we had this very strange backstory of, uh, was it a backstory? Was it a front story? What kind of a story was it? These strange accents. All my grandparents' friends were survivors. Um, you had you know, very strange second marriages where they had only one thing in common, that they were survivors. Um, unspeakable loss between them, between all of them, that was never spoken about. Um, and interestingly, um, you know, part of, the, part of the reason that the second generation experience is what it is, is because um, the, the survivors themselves often say, well, we didn't have the time or the luxury of thinking about this story. So the second generationers say, yeah, thanks very much. You gave it all to us to figure out. So um, that, for, for, for me, very much part of my journey is is trying to figure out what this identity means because mm. it's so intense. And I know, for example, that my nephews don't feel anything like the intensity of this experience. They're not even Jewish. So I, I think it takes uh, three or four generations for the, the reverberation to kind, kind of lessen. Maybe yes. when they get to 40, they'll start thinking about it. But I do, I mean, Oliver raises a very interesting issue, several very interesting issues, I would say. Uh, the first thing, Oliver, that 
strikes me as you speak is that's why when I began speaking earlier, I emphasized the obliqueness of my relationship to the, to the victims in my family, because I think that gave me a kind of space that allowed me to, to undertake my project, which is not a space that you're able to enjoy and that it, it's more, much more fraught for you. You know, these are your parents that, that we're talking about and their families. And as I said, you know, we grew up hearing about Uncle Schmiel and Aunt Esther and the four girls, but we never knew them. My mother, whose cousins these girls were, never had never met them, you know. So the whole thing allowed for a kind of space. And in fact, Oliver, something you were just saying remi reminds me of one of the most remarkable experiences I had as I traveled. So what happened is I, I went back to the family town got a few clues and that led me on a sort of a, a chase, you know, that I, I found a survivor who led me to another survivor from this little town and each person had a sort of piece of the puzzle about what happened to my relatives, you know this. Um, and so quite often, so I would fly to wherever, Sweden, Denmark, Ukraine, Australia to talk to these very old survivors who had grown up with the people that I was related to. And it was very often the case that their families would gather round as they recounted the story, which inevitably became also their story of survival and how they survived, because of course my relatives didn't. And I assumed at the beginning that the family was gathering around to lend moral support to the elderly survivor who was recounting. And it was because they'd never heard it themselves. That, that you know, you mentioned Oliver, that sort of reluctance to share and all the reasons that people would give, they're too busy, it's in the past, there's no point going over it, you know. To our era, if, which is, if anything, an era of oversharing, I think it's safe to say that strikes us as very peculiar that you would have this terrible trauma and not wanna talk about it. Um, so I'm very, uh, you know, I just feel it's important to, to mark this crucial difference between us and our narratives because I, 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 in some sense, I feel I was able to both embark on my project and write my book because I wasn't that close to these people who had suffered these terrible things. Um, can, yeah, I, can I ask you, because I just to come in here, because it's something that I'm always surprised about it, that linked to this, when each time I hear you tell your story, Objects of Love, because you come in and, and tell it to my students, each time you have a new detail, you're really, uncovering information now, especially, if, for example, about your grandfather's death and what happened to him, his fate. I mean, each month or it seems like that each time you talk every six months, you, you are uncovering other information. Um, it is remarkable. And I, I describe it as sort of terminal moraine, you know, as the glacier finally retreats, it spits out um, these pieces of information that have been buried for kind of um, uh, 80 years. Um, there are, I, I, I suppose, a number of factors um, that contribute to that. One, my mother is 82, and like all people who reach um, a good age, their 
long-term memory seems to uh, go into overdrive and all sorts of um, interesting morsels um, come up and uh, come, come from her and, and quite nonchalantly sometimes. In conversation just re recently, she told me, for example, that amazingly, the doctor who delivered her survived and came to London and was a great friend of theirs. I never knew this. And, and I, I just found it intriguing and, and somehow um, there was something actually quite triumphant about it. The, the very person who had helped bring my mother into the world uh, was, was alive. And, and apparently a, a, a real character who, who got on extremely well with my, with my mother's stepfather um, and uh, remarkably um, we found a whole trove of documents in um, the uh, US Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. What the, how they got there, I don't know. Um, but for instance, um, we found my grandfather's, my, my mother's, just for, for the sake of the audience, my, my mother's father, um, the, the, this family came from Woods, and uh, my, my grandfather disappeared uh, right at the beginning of the war, and uh, we, we weren't quite sure what happened to him and, until I really started digging um, and remarkably just last November uh, we we found out that the, the truth the, the precise truth through these documents uh, legal documents mm -hmm. uh, my, my, my grandmother's testimony um, explaining that um, he had been taken to this notorious uh, detention center called the Radagosh. It used to be a Jewish-owned factory until the Gestapo took it over. And um, he, uh, so he, he, he was taken there. She, my grandmother, was notified um, to, to come and bring food to him on the 24th of November, 1939 exactly uh, 13 days after he disappeared. And when she arrived, um, he, they told her she was informed that he had been murdered two days earlier. And they gave her um, his effects, his clothing. Um, and this was corroborated by uh, a another prisoner who had been an employee of my grandfather's and had been arrested at the same time. And he, here was a, a legal testimony. And we only discovered this last November, just digging away. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it is startling. 14 documents, including my grandfather's birth certificate, marriage certificate it, it 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 is really quite amazing how 
uh, how much information is out there still. And I do wonder about the attics and floorboards right across Europe that are hiding information that for probably for a lot of families, uh, they may even know about it and it's, it's too difficult for them to, um, to, to open up. Can I come in here um, uh, and ask you both? So both of you really want to retrieve the stories of these individuals. You know, take them out of the, their identity as a victim and this meta-narrative of the Holocaust and World War II. And the details are really quite extraordinary, being able to fill in those details. And both of you use images. I mean, Oliver, in your presentation and Daniel, in your book, you use images in a, in a, in a in really a revealing way, getting us to think about, uh, about these people and, and the details of their lives. Um, and this kind of post-memory, as it's known as now, this kind of proxy witnessing in a way is really the, the way in which Holocaust representation is going outside of the area of history writing. Um, what were the, the details in particular that you found, obviously this has driven you, but you found told you the most, um, brought the humanity of these people um, back to life? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, something that Oliver just said in passing uh, uh, struck me, which is I'm very, uh, I think just because I'm a writer, I'm very attentive to the vocabulary that we use when describing the kinds of things that happen. And so he said that, uh, Oliver, you said your grandfather disappeared. And, you know, I'm always very alert and of course, from the point of view of those who were waiting from him, he did disappear. But I always feel that nobody just disappears, right? Things, specific things happen to specific people. And we, we, we sometimes use, you know, when I was growing up, it was, it was perished, they perished. Whereas one really wants to say, well, no, they were murdered, right? Perished is a kind of a, a there's a vagueness about it that that slithers away from the hard facts. So I, I say this as a as a preface, Zulika, to answering your question because I must say that for the reasons I've already explained, when I embarked on my search, it seemed to me the most important thing was to find out how they had been killed, because nobody knew anything. You know, my mother when I was growing up said, well they were there at the beginning of the war and we got letters from them. And then at the end of the war, they weren't there anymore. And, but nobody had any kind of a specific. And so in a certain broad sense, we knew what happened to them. What happened to them happened to 3 million other people in Poland. Um, but I began to be bothered by how easy it is to resort to a kind of a vague, you know, they perished, they disappeared, you know, and, and that's what got me going. And then as I was seeking to, and interviewing the very few, it turned out there were 12 Jewish survivors of this one town where my family was from, out of 6,000 before the war. And as I said, each of them had a piece of a story about what they thought had happened to my various relatives, who turned out that almost every member of this family of six died at a different time in a different way. But as I was researching the deaths, I suddenly became 
far more interested in the lives. You know, I thought to, to only be interested in their deaths is to recondemn them in a funny way and to re-subtract their humanity from them. Although this time it was coming from me and I had a sort of ethical qualm about that. So as I interviewed people who, you know, knew these people in the 1920s and 30s and, and even into the war, I suddenly realized that what I really needed to be doing was, was getting as much as I could about their lives. You know, there's this phenomenon we call backshadowing, which is, you know, writing about people who met terrible ends as if their whole lives had been leading up to that end, which is false and does them a terrible injustice. You know, my, my, my uncle and aunt and cousins did not spend their whole lives waiting to be victims of the Holocaust. They had rich lives, you know, colorful lives. And, and that, at a certain point, it became much more important to me to restore that to them, whatever could be known. And it must be said, there were only a few scraps left, but each scrap seemed that much more precious, I would say. So, you know, there were all kinds of, 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 stories and you know you know various of the survivors I interview who were basically the age of my mother's cousins obviously people born in the 1920s you know remembered that one of the girls was sort of snooty and and you know thought very highly of herself and I thought that was so charming and you know and another one was very shy and angelic and you know it sounds so banal but it isn't because that's what was taken away from them. You know, their specificity is what was taken away from them. And therefore I thought it was very important to give that back to them as much as I could. Oliver, you use these objects from your, that you have inherited that tell the story, not just about what happened to them, but about their lives and characters as well. And I think that's particularly about your grandmother um, yes, I feel extremely lucky um, to have, I, I, I'm kind of the unofficial family archivist. Um, I think it's because I, I'm the one who took the most specific interest. And we, we, just, have, we just have a remarkable um, uh, collection of artifacts and um, photographs and now um, documents which, um, as Daniel says, you know, in fact, many of them relate to the world, the life before. Um, and in some cases, uh, for me, these are the, the single most difficult um, objects and photographs to, to look at. Um, I have the powder compact that my grandfather gave to my grandmother when they were courting with a with a little hat and a feather on it which which symbolized a, a song a, a popular song a green hat with a feather in it um which um which apparently was all all the rage in the 30s and and it was their thing it was their as i describe a conspiracy of intimacy and and there it is this this platinum um this platinum uh, symbol of young love, and they were very much in love, which remarkably was, was hidden 
and made it out through the war. Um, I, I have I have the ring that um, was given to my grandmother by by her father uh, for her 18th birthday in 1930. Now my wife Catherine's engagement ring. Um, there, there is such, there, the, the, these objects um, are are extremely powerful, but because they also span a period of time. I found it, I, I found it a very useful device to um, present, present the family story because they, they carry so much, they carry so much meaning. Um, the other powder compact that I have is one of the most astonishing objects I think I've come across anywhere um, right at the end of the war when my grandmother, my mother aged six and um, her, her grandmother find their way back to their home in Woj. Um, they stayed there for about a year and a half, but um, Woj is, and Poland is still a very unsafe place for Jews after the war. There are um, mini pogroms. Um, it's very difficult and threatening. And uh, my grandmother took the decision to uh, leave Poland. She had she she managed to secure papers for South America, and in fact the. The London leg was just a, a transit stop, but she sold her apartment for a fraction of what it was worth. Um, and she bought gold and had it melted down into this powder compact, which is the, the perfect currency for the refugee. There you have you know, your, your value in plain sight. And as I've described it, her, her whole uh, past and future was distilled into a single golden square of hope. And I have it. And you pick it up and, you know, it's heavy. It's, it's something that feels um, valuable. Uh, and there it is. What a story. What a story to tell. Um, I, I, I find... Um, I, I, I'm very moved every time I, I tell the story and I, I know I keep telling it because I, I see and feel that people relate to it. These are ordinary objects made extraordinary. Both of you, I think, have touched on, well, Daniel, you touched on the ethical issue of telling other people's stories. How did your family respond to... Um, to your book project and your detective work. And then Oliver, I'm going to come and ask you, or you can ask first about your mum is watching this. How does your mum, I know that I've done an event, a couple of events with both of you, and you have different perspectives on this, but how does she feel about, um, about you doing the detective work and telling this story? So maybe we'll start with you, Oliver. Well, my mum is a Jewish mother, so um, it goes without saying that there would be a, a large dose of guilt involved um, anyhow. She, she feels, part of her feels very guilty that 
um, uh, she, she, she feels that the, the, the Holocaust has taken a swipe at me. Um, but I don't, I mean, it, 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 it's not her fault. It's the legacy that we have. Um, it, it, it's, it's our reality. Um, I happen, it's taken me a long time to be able to navigate um, a world where this happened to my family at close quarters, uh, to rationalize all the absences, all the strange behaviors. Um, well, they're not strange, actually, if that's your experience, but it takes a long time, it takes decades to be able to un unravel that. Um, so she now feels, um, I think that there is, there is a, a, a healthy dose of pride. She, she understands that I need to do lots of things. I need to remember this story or have it remembered. I need to honor those people, those members of, of my family who were murdered. Um, and I, I need, maybe we'll talk about this um, next, so important for me to understand that um, this all happened because uh, people let it happen. Democracy broke down. And I just am not prepared to sit back and watch a world that is, um, you know, established democracies in certain countries are under severe stress. I'm not going to sit back and let others simply fight for this. I, I, I've understood finally that it's it's the responsibility of all of us. Um, so that that's essentially how my particular relationship with the Holocaust manifests in, in my day-to-day -day life. Daniel. Well, I mean, to go back uh, to your uh, first question, Zulika, I think, so it's funny because again, this issue of perspective and distance comes up. So my mother, so my, grand, my grandparents, my grandfather, his brother were all born around 1900. So they were adults during the war. My mother and her murdered cousins are all born in the 20s and 30s. And it was interesting because my mother's generation and her other cousins, the children of Schmiel's other siblings, were not interested in pursuing this story, I think because it was too close to them, because they really grew up with it. You know, that was their childhood. And I think the fact that I'm a grandchild of the adult generation of World War II gave me perspective. Um, and I say that because I think my mother, her cousins who were alive at the, at the time I was writing were grateful that I, I did the, you know, did the legwork, did the research, went on all those trips, interviewed people, and finally found out the answer to the great question that hung over everyone for decades, which is what happened to Uncle Schmiel? So I think they were rather grateful. 
I should say that my brother, Matt, was a, very deeply involved in my pro project. He's a, a brilliant photographer and he provided a kind of visual record of the trips, portraits of the survivors, portraits of these desolate places where we uh, visited. So that was an important part of the book. Those images are part of my text. But I think people were, I mean, I think people were happy that this mystery had been solved. And as I mentioned before, not just the mystery of how they had died, but the mystery of who they had been, which no one really knew. Um, so I think, I, I think people were pleased, you know, um, and I think it meant something to the family. You know, my, this family of my mother is far flung. We have a whole branch in Israel. They were all over the United States. And there was a sense that, you know, it, it sort of brought us together. Thank you. So bringing the conversation on, I suppose, to the present time, and Oliver, you touched on one of the reasons why you find it so important to speak about your family. I suppose this, this series um, is called Why Talk About the Holocaust? So why talk about it now? Is there anything particular that's happening now? Obviously, we're telling stories about the past. Why do both of you feel compelled uh, to come along this evening um, and to talk about it? Why is it relevant? Um, you know, one of my responsibilities in Trinity is I teach the Holocaust and um, each year I think about my Holocaust module and I think, right, well, why now? What, what is it about this moment now um, that, uh, that I, I need to think about in my presentation of the Holocaust as well? So I would ask you both, is there anything that you would like to say about the current climate or contemporary concerns that you feel telling your story can contribute to dealing with or understanding these challenges? Well, I mean, I think certainly, look, one is always torn because in many ways the Holocaust is unique, even in the horrible history of genocides, it's unique because of the scale because of the industrialized death, many because of the way it perverted technology to the evil ends. And yet one also has to recognize that there are genocides taking place right now and that uh, we were speaking before this event began. And I said, you know, as I always do, you're, you're not allowed only to care about your genocide. You know, if, if one cares about genocide, you have to care about everything. And to my mind, as an American, having just lived through the past four and a half years uh, in this country, you know, one always has to remind people that the Holocaust didn't start with gas chambers and people being lined up in front of pits and shot and you know, all of these things that are well known. You know, it started incrementally. And a lot of that incrementality, we have seen here the beginning stages of. You know, the demonization of the press, the, the, the use of the big lie on the part of power hungry people, the demonization of minorities and particularly foreigners, you know, this is all part of the playbook. And if you, if you cannot have the moral courage to call a spade a spade and say that this is how these things begin and one has to be vigilant, 
then there's no point in studying history. You know, if, if you know, we're always saying never again, never again. Well, I think that a lot of what happened in this country under the Trump regime was scarily resembling the kinds of things that we saw in Germany in the early 1930s. You know, as I always remind my students, Hitler was elected. Hitler was elected. A lot of people don't realize that. They think he came to power by a coup d'etat. He was voted in democratically. So I think, Zulika, you mentioned just now of the you know, weakness, you know, the, the problem of weak democracies, which is continuing to be a problem in my country right now, um, is something we should worry about because they always begin gradually. And if you're not vigilant about the beginning steps, by the time the really terrible things happen, it's too late to stop. So I think that's why I personally, after many years of not doing kinds of events like this, I'm sort of back in the arena because I do think it's important to remind people how this thing came to be. And it was very insidious. Those are, those are ex I would say exactly my, uh, my thoughts. Um, I, I, I just cannot take um, what, what is happening in countries like Poland and Hungary lightly. Uh, the, the, these are very, very serious um, developments and they, they have to be resisted. Unfortunately, in Europe, perhaps we've done too good a job at keeping peace because we have a, a generation or two already who take it for granted. They think that this gossamer thing called this gossamer thin thing called democracy is, is um, what you get by simply just waking up in the morning and that you, you don't have to contribute to it at all. It, it, it's perfectly represented that attitude in, in low voting turnout. I mean, it, it's, to me, it's absolutely remarkable that we've reached a point um, in Europe where a, a, a region that forever has torn itself apart uh, that people think, oh, well, you don't have to vote. It's okay. So they, they, they give a kind of a s smart re uh, reply. It's, it's doesn't, there's no point in voting. It's always the government that gets in. Well, that's com completely a, a, a dangerous attitude. Um, and we, you know, you, you, you saw it uh, unfold in America in a terrifying way. And I, I say to people who don't want to vote or don't care, say, look, if there are two candidates on the ballot and one uh, really looks like Adolf Hitler and says things like Adolf Hitler, um, believe me, they're not joking. You have to vote for the other candidate. Um, A lot of comments and questions are coming in and uh, it's hard to follow all of them, but um, I think there's a very interesting one here with someone saying, you know, why talk about the Holocaust? Um, you know, are we privileging one genocide? And Oliver, I, I'd like to perhaps give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about your new organization, because I know that you and I have planned our Why Talk About the Holocaust series. This is only the start of them. 
we're going to take on broader topics, are we not? I mean, we're going to talk about racism and xenophobia and conflict and post-conflict justice, but I guess you're coming out of, of, of your particular personal story. I, uh, my responsibility is teaching Jewish studies. So starting with those, but bringing on the, the taking on these larger questions. Um, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the goal, the mission is um, to co connect the Holocaust to contemporary culture, to make people and the politics of our time, to make it relevant. And, um, you know, beyond the, 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 the presentation of the objects of love, which, by the way, I, I find is a universal story. Um, I know and I see it in people's faces that it taps into um, uh, any and every kind of personal grief and loss. It's, it, it's extraordinary in that, in that way. And it doesn't matter how, how old you are or if this is the first time you've even heard of the Holocaust. You, you describe what happens to ordinary loving people um, and it's moving. But beyond that, I'm, I'm very keen to bring uh, voices from other uh, arenas and fields uh, to talk uh, perhaps about how the Holocaust has influenced or impacted their experience in, I don't know, the field of medicine, of art, of literature, of music. Um, it, it's, it was such a monumental event that we're still trying to well understand is a hopeless word to use but trying to weigh and measure um that um i i i feel that there is an an awful lot of uh work to be done in terms of making those connections so that i've i've, I've said I don't, my intention isn't that everyone become a scholar in the Holocaust, that they understand that this event happened right in the heart of Europe, that it happened because of the bystanders. The bystanders allowed this to happen. They stood by. And those bystanders, you have to ask yourself, who would you be? Would you be a victim? Would you be a perpetrator? Would you be a bystander? How implicated are you? And uh, what role do you want to take in the society that you're living today? Yes, I would, I, you know, I would ask, add to Oliver's comments in response to this question, well, you know, why talk about the Jewish Holocaust as opposed to these other things? First of all, it's not a zero sum. You know, one can talk about all these things. You know, it's not that by talking about the Holocaust, you're implying that we should not be talking about the Armenian genocide by the Turks or any of the other things that have happened in even in more recent memory, the Bosnians, things that are happening right now all over the world. So I always find that a little odd. You know, it's not, it's not as if by talking about the Holocaust, we're saying you can't talk about other things. And in fact, au contraire, one wants to be able to draw, connect the dots. Um, that's the obvious point. I would, that said, I would circle back to something Oliver just said, which is that for us, 
Ireland, the United States, right, you know, we are products of European civilization. And the Holocaust has a special place in the history of European civilization. And it goes to the very roots of certain central currents of the history of Europe, the history of Christianity, the history of Judaism, all these things are tied up. And so I think one is allowed to say that for us as products of European civilization, this event becomes a laboratory to examine the failures of European civilization in very specific ways, not least the incredibly long history of anti-Semitism that goes back to the very foundations of European culture. Um, but also, as I mentioned before, it's about failures of modernity. It's about you know, questions about what civilization means. The cliche, which everybody knows, is nobody was more civilized than the Germans. Nobody was more civilized than the Germans. So what does it mean when the most civilized Europeans can commit the worst atrocity? You know, that's why we talk about the Holocaust. Those questions never go away, even though the event is receding in almost beyond living memory. And even though this event happens in other places, alas, for us, I think it bears a special weight because it seems so cataclysmic a failure of the values of the civilization that we otherwise celebrate. Oliver, would you like to respond in some way? We have talked a lot about uh, current uh, anti-Semitism and you know the fact that it's becoming, it has never, re it's never gone away, but it has become more, I suppose, um, prevalent in public discourse on social media, etc. And uh, even in Dublin and graffiti and things like this, I mean, we have spoken about that. Would you like to comment on, on that? Um, well, in terms of its proliferation, um, uh, I think there's no doubt that um, that social media is, uh, well, it, it's the, the, the number one contributor to the spread of anti-Semitism. Um, and simply, if we don't understand the significance and the power of social media, and if we don't understand that it is, uh, it has unleashed forces that were neither foreseen or easily controlled, we will, we will lose democracy in in the West. I have, no, I, I just have no doubt about it. Um, and uh, you know, my my solution is, uh, I'm not the first to say this, is that we have to turn. We have to turn these social media giants into publishers, and we, we, we have to restrict. I mean, this idea of having ten thousand friends—who has ten thousand friends? You know, what's wrong with twenty? You know, how how about if if you need a uh, if you need a license to be a journalist? Uh, why why not? I'd, I'd happily apply for a license to. Um, uh, be able to operate my Twitter account. You know, there could be licenses at different levels: a private license, a, a commercial license. The, these uh, these people don't understand that these people who run these organisations they'll earn just the just the same amount of money. But I don't think that um, the future of 
um, elections in, in specific countries should be left in the hands of Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey. It's, it's completely absurd. So there are many questions coming in and many comments, but I can't include them all. However, there, one question has come in on Facebook and Daniel, I'm going to uh, privilege my position as chair to ask it because I also found this fascinating. Um, what kind of narrative support did people like Rashi, so the medieval um, Jewish uh, rabbi and commentator on the Bible and, and uh, the Mishnah, um, Talmud, uh, what kind of figures like Rashi, um, what, telling your story, what sort of narrative support? Somebody said the favorite part of your book was the commentary on Genesis. Yes, so just for people who haven't read the book, that, that I, I, my book tells the story of my search for to learn about my relatives, but it pauses every now and then to consider a, 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 a story from Genesis, um, to sort of pull back from the immediate action and think about uh, uh, some of the issues raised at the beginning of the Bible about these very things, genocide, extermination, survival. You know, as I started writing the book, I realized that, for example, the story of Noah and the ark is about a survivor. It's about what it means to survive a cataclysm and start over again. So I selected a number of these Bible stories to sort of delve into every now and then. And I found it very helpful for my own thinking to be able to pull away from the drama of the, the, the detect, my own you know, detective work and my own increasing involvement with my relatives whom I felt I was getting to know even though I had already lost them in a strange way. Um, and then I, I also consulted some of the more famous commentators on, on the Torah uh, in order to see how they interpreted these episodes. So I wanted in my book to sort of construct this apparatus of reading and interpretation, which is very much a part of Jewish religious culture, you know, the endless argument about what things mean, um, and to sort of place that inside the book. So I found it very helpful, uh, you know, to myself. For example, um, the story of the wife of Lot, you know, and, and fleeing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and being told that she was not allowed to look back. And of course she does look back and she turns to a pillar of salt. And suddenly as I was writing my book, this, this took on an incredible significance as a kind of parable for what I was doing and, and the dangers of becoming obsessed with the past, the backward glance, you know, that at a certain point, one has to deal with the past. And I think this applies you know, to all of us today and our interest in history and some of these questions that have already been asked, why think about these things, but to also at a certain point become free of the past or at least be able to move into the future and take the lessons of the past with you. Otherwise you become frozen, you know, as people do. I mean, that is a danger with being obsessed with the past. So I found that whole uh, experience to be extremely illuminating for myself. And I'm very happy to hear that, that it was someone's favorite part of the book because it was kind of a risk, I thought. So that's very reassuring. 
Thank you. Oliver, just any, any last comments you'd like to make before we have to very sadly finish up? Um, well, I um, reading a little bit about um, Daniel's own thoughts. I, I was really touched by his comment um, it, regard, regarding the value of um, uh, eyewitness testimony. Um, relative to perhaps the um, the tendency for us to to look at horrific pictures, um, he said that um, in some cases um, uh, a picture. Uh, well, uh, 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 what did he say? Sorry, a thousand words. Um, a, a single word is worth a thousand pictures. I think is what you said. It was it was the the, the reverse of the it was the inverse of of, of the the normal. You know, picture is worth a thousand words. And um, I I re I really related to that, Daniel. Not least because I too am not a writer, and I had part uh, part of the delay in me getting to this point. In my journey, is that I felt that I've had I've had to practice writing um, for the last decade or so um, in in order to find the words that I need to say, and um, I would just like to extend um, my my compliments to you for this extraordinary book, and I recommend every everybody read it. It's it's just a it's a magnificent towering piece of writing, and um, so just thank you for having written it, and um, from from us, thank you for this evening. It means so much to us here in Ireland. Well, thank you for thinking of me. It's been wonderful to be able to talk to you. So first of all, I want to thank all our audience. We've had so many thoughts and comments and questions, um, but because the discussion was so rich, I'm afraid we couldn't really get to them all. Um, we will be having many more events um, in the coming year, years, hopefully. And um, please have, check out Holocaust Awareness Ireland's website because Oliver um, and his activities can be found there. Um, so thank you to our audience. Thank you again to the Long Room Hub for all their support, especially the technical support. But most of all, thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Oliver, for sharing your stories this evening. Thank you, Zalika. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.